Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week is Part 2 of the Standard Building Contract. Uh, And today's episode meets PC5 of the Part 3 criteria. So, uh, as mentioned in the previous episode, I covered the contract documents, obligations of the contractor program and control of the works. Uh, And today we will be looking at the rest of the standard building contract form, uh, covering sums properly due, payment, insurance, termination and dispute resolution. So let's start by looking at uh, sums properly due. So the standard building contract with quantities and without quantities, uh, as mentioned in the previous episode, are both uh, lump sum contracts. So the contract sum may contain provisional sums or approximate quantities to cover the cost of work that can be accurately described or measured until work is underway. Now, with uh, if you have the standard building contract with approximate quantities, This one is a remeasurement contract, so approximate quantities only are given for all of the works, and the contractor submits a fully priced copy of the bills of approximate quantities at tender stage, which forms the basis of the contract, and then the final amount payable in accordance with the conditions is termed as the ascertained final sum. So with quantities and without quantities are lump sum contracts, and the approximate quantities is a remeasurement contract. So if the contractor suffers a direct loss and or direct expense due to a delay or disruption, they may be able to be reimbursed under loss and expense. So I covered this section in a previous episode, episode 48. Uh, So you can listen to that for more on loss and expense claims. So the contractor must apply for this in writing, otherwise the contract administrator has no power or obligation to deal with the loss and expense claim. So in determining um, loss and expense, the contract administrator must assess what has been suffered and the sums that can be awarded and include any loss or expense that has arisen as a result of a relevant matter. So the standard building contract allows for uh, fluctuations and they are covered under Schedule 7, which allows for contribution, levy and tax uh, fluctuations, uh, which is covered under Option A within the form. So Option A provides for full recovery of all fluctuations in the rates of contributions, levies and taxes in the employment of labour and in the rates of duties and taxes on the procurement materials. So when such provisions are allowed, they are payable for the whole time the contractor is uh, on site. So the contractor is entitled to um, these uh, fluctuation costs during the duration of the works. So once the works have been complete, then the contractor obviously isn't entitled to these anymore. Now, let's move on to the payment processes. So one of the most important duties of the contract administrator is the issuing of the certificates of payment. Uh, Failure on their part to certify correctly can amount to negligence. 
So the payment provisions in the standard building contract have been drafted to be compliant with the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act 1996. So typically interim payment will follow the issue of an interim certificate and the contractor can issue their view on what the interim certificate should cover, known as the interim application. But the valuation of the interim certificate is determined by the contract administrator. Now, if no certificate is issued by the contract administrator, the interim application made by the contractor will take precedence and the amount stated from that will be due. But if neither application or certificate have been issued, then the contractor may issue a payment notice and the amount on the notice will then become payable. So the amount is calculated in two ways, either through accepting the figure stated within the contractor's application for payment or through the valuation carried out by the cost consultant before the due date of the payment. So an interim valuation date will be stated within the contract that will apply on the same day each month or on the nearest working day. So basically, uh, the form will be filled in stating what is due to the contractor, what they will be paid that month. And it's sent out every month to the contractor. Uh, and this is what the interim valuation date uh, essentially is. So the contractor can make an application any time before the interim valuation date uh, and the due date, um, which follows seven days later. And then the contract administrator must issue an interim certificate within five days of the due date, valuing the works as they were at the time of the interim valuation date. There is also a subcontractor's due date, which is 12 days after the interim valuation date, so that the main contractor puts in funds to pay the subcontractors within a five-day margin. So there is an option to require the subcontractor to make a payment application at least four days before the interim valuation date uh, to give the main contractor enough time to incorporate it into their application. And then the final date for payment is 14 days after the due date, reflecting the fact that the due date has been pushed back. So interim payment dates continue up until the final certificate at monthly uh, valuation intervals. Now, interim certificates themselves should demonstrate the basis on which the sum uh, shown and stated has been calculated from. So the certificate should state the total value of work that has been properly executed, the, the total value of materials and goods uh, on site, and the value of any off-site materials, goods or items, provided they are listed items. So listed items may be items that are uniquely identified or not uniquely identified uh, within the contract. For example, materials or goods for inclusion in the works and items uh, listed by the employer. So this can be the facade, for example, the facade material. So the value of the listed item may be included in the interim certificate, provided they are in accordance with the contract and that the contractor has provided reasonable proof that the property is vested in it and that the items are insured against uh, specified perils until delivery on site. 
and the items are set apart or clearly marked from uh, any others that aren't considered as listed items. Uh, so if uh, an item is uniquely identified, a bond should be provided if required in the contract particulars, and the same applies if an item is not uniquely identified. So the contract administrator has no power to certify any offside items other than those uh, listed within the contract. So essentially, interim certificates should state the um, works that have been done to date, uh, the value of the materials and goods on site, and materials off site, but only if they are listed items. So those are the three key items that need to be listed within an interim certificate. Another item to be taken into account within the interim certificate would be the amounts for work in connection with insurance claims, loss and expense, costs due to suspension and additional sums payable by the employer to the contractor for any fees and charges or for any inspection tests, royalties, insurance and so on, uh, which are items uh, as provided for in the contract. So then the value of the work will be calculated using the rates shown in the bills or the price documents. And then you have the full sum of the interim certificate. So this is, these are additional items that may uh, creep up that the contract administrator will need to include in the interim certificate along the other three that I uh, just mentioned. Now, when it comes to retention, this is the percentage value of the overall payment of construction works, which is held back until all works have been concluded. So retention fee is essentially just an amount held back uh, to keep the contractor incentivized, essentially, until they finish the work completely upon practical completion. So upon practical completion, half of this retention uh, is released and the amount is inserted in the contract particulars and it is best practice if the retention amount is held in a separate account by the employer. Now in lieu of retention the employer and contractor can take out bonds as an alternative and this must be indicated in the contract particulars and specify the maximum aggregate sum to be um, secured. In such a scenario Retention is not deducted from the amount on the interim certificate, but instead a statement of the retention that would have been deducted is prepared before each interim certificate. And if at any time the statement exceeds the amount uh, stated from the aggregate sum in the bond, either the contractor arranges for the bond to be adjusted or the employer deducts retention for the unsecured amount. So once the contractor provides the bond required, then advance payment can be paid uh, from the employer if this is applicable to the contract. And this is payable to the contractor before the first certificate of payment is due for issue and the payment is made directly from the employer to the contractor. Now, if the employer fails to pay the contractor uh, any amounts that are due to them, then the standard building contract makes provisions for uh, interest to be accrued on any unpaid amount. So the contractor is also given the right of suspension in the event the employer fails to pay 
by the final date for payment, meaning the contract has a right to suspend performance of all of their obligations under the contract. But if a payless notice has been issued by the employer, then the contractor may not uh, suspend works. Now, if the contractor intends to suspend works, they must notify the employer and resume any work when the payment is made. Now, any delay caused by the suspension is a relevant event and any reasonable costs and expenses incurred are claimable and the contractor also has the right to terminate the contract if the employer doesn't pay amounts due and gives notice to the employer of their intention to do so. So by the final certificate stage, the interim certificates uh, should be issued at monthly intervals. The practical completion certificate has been issued. Uh, issue of interim certificate following practical completion. And this should include the release of half of the retention. Further certificates are issued at monthly intervals during the rectification period. And the certificate of making good has been issued. So the final certificate should then state the contract sum as adjusted and set out all the deductions and additions to the contract sum. And the final date for payment of the final certificate is 28 days from the due date. And it can also be a negative amount, meaning the contractor owes the employer. And the final certificate is also subject to a payless notice by either party. So the final certificate is conclusive evidence that proper adjustments have been made to the contract sum and the contractor is prevented from seeking to raise any further claims for extension of time or for reimbursements of direct loss and or expense. So that's their cutoff period uh, for claiming any of these um, claims or extensions of time. It is also uh, conclusive evidence that matters expressed uh, for the approval of the contract administrator have been approved. So then both parties, um, the contractor and the employer, have the right to challenge the final certificate by commencing proceedings within 28 days of its issue. Uh, if dispute resolution proceedings start before the issue of the final certificate, then the certificate doesn't become conclusive on any matters until the proceedings are concluded or if the party that raised the dispute takes uh, no further action for a period of 12 months, then the certificate will be deemed as conclusive. And the relevant uh, sum stated within it will then be uh, paid. But if proceedings are raised after the issue of the certificate, then the certificate is only conclusive with respect to matters that are not challenged in the proceedings. So if there is outstanding work that has been stated to be to the approval of the contract administrator, then the contract administrator shouldn't issue the certificate until the work is uh, satisfactory. But if unsatisfactory work has been accepted, then the contract administrator and employer will have to decide on whether to issue the final certificate or not. So the whole payment process under the standard building contract can be a little bit confusing. So I would definitely recommend if, um, if you can to grab a copy of um, understanding the standard building, the guide to understanding the standard building contract by Sarah Lupton because it has some very useful 
uh, diagrams in there showing uh, what happens when the due dates uh, come with the evacuation dates and so on. It shows how each one uh, overlaps and when each thing should be issued. So I would highly recommend you uh, grabbing a copy of that book uh, and reading through it to understand this uh, section a bit better. So that covers payment under the standard building contract. Now let's move on to insurance. So construction operations can be very unpredictable, as we all know, and uh, very hazardous, resulting in personal injury or damage to property or the works. So liability is very important, which is backed up by insurance. So the contractor must take out insurance against claims arising in respect of person and property and insurance of the works. So the contractor must also carry public liability policy to cover their liability in respect to third parties. And all insurances must meet the requirements set out in the standard building contract. Now, when it comes to uh, damage that occurred to a property, the contractor is only liable to the extent that the damage was caused by negligence or breach of statutory duty or other default of the contractor or of any of the contractor's persons. It's worth clarifying that the definition property excludes the works up to practical completion. Now, if the damage is caused to a neighbouring building due to vibrations, for example, even though the contractor has taken reasonable care to prevent this, it, in such cases, it is advisable the employer takes out a special policy for such instances. So this can also potentially be done under the standard building contract form and the contractor will be required to take out this insurance. So the standard building contract form provides three alternative options for covering insurance of the works and the option to be applied will have to be entered in the contract particulars. So the policies must be maintained up until uh, practical completion of the works or termination. So insurance option A is taken out by the contractor and is to be for the full reinstatement value of the works, including professional fees, to the extent entered in the contract particulars. So the contractor is responsible for keeping the works fully covered and must provide evidence, uh, as required, that the insurance has been taken out. Now, if the contractor fails to take out the insurance, the employer may do so and deduct the cost from uh, sums due to the contractor. Uh, under insurance option B, this is taken out by the employer and is for the full reinstatement value of the works, including professional fees. So the employer will be responsible for keeping works fully covered and provide evidence that the policy has been taken out, except where the employer is a local authority. Now, if the employer defaults, then the contractor may take out the policy and the amount is added to the contract sum. And lastly, with insurance option C, uh, this option is applicable where work is being carried out to existing buildings and it includes two insurances, both taken out by the employer. So there is insurance for the existing structure and contents uh, against, uh, to be insured against specified perils and new works by uh, an all-risks insurance policy. So if damage occurs to the property under either option, the contractor must notify the contract administrator 
and the employer of the details of the damage and the insurers are then immediately informed. So the insurers will inspect the damage and the contractor is then obliged to make good the damage and continue with the works. So all three options state that the occurrence of such loss or damage shall be disregarded in computing any amounts payable to the contractor. Uh, the contractor is also required to take out terrorism cover and can be done as either an extension to the policy or as a separate policy and it must be taken out in the same amount and for the required period of the main policy. Um, the contractor is also required to carry professional indemnity insurance and the level and amount for cover must be inserted in the contract particulars. If no level is inserted, it will be the aggregate amount for any one period of insurance. And if no amount is stated, then no insurance will be required. Now, if the expiry period is to be 12 years from practical completion, this should be stated in the contract. Otherwise, the period will be six years. Uh, and this insurance must be taken out immediately following the execution of the contract and maintained until the date of practical completion. Now, with regards to liquidated damages, the contract doesn't cover these, so any employer wishing to take out this insurance would have to make this independently. Now, this is tr a tricky one, however, as liquidated damages are payable without proof. Uh, so as a result, not many companies offer such insurance covers. So employers should... Um, think uh, very well and review this very closely if they wish to uh, take out such an insurance. So that covers the insurance processes. Now let's look at termination. So where the behaviour of one party makes it difficult or impossible for the other party to carry out its contractual obligations, the injured party might allege prevention of performance and sue uh, either for damages or a quantum merit. Quantum merit is the amount to be paid uh, to the other party for works uh, done. So where it's impossible to expect further performance for the party, then the allegation might be that of repudiation, which occurs when one party makes it clear that it no longer intends to be bound by the provisions of the contract. So the termination clauses within the standard building contract make allowance for the contractor's employment to be terminated, but not termination of the contract itself, meaning that parties still remain bound by its provisions. Now, if repudiation occurs, it's not necessary to invoke a termination clause because the injured party can accept the repudiation and bring the contract to an end. Repudiation is rejecting uh, a proposal made. Now, if the termination provisions are unjustifiable, carried out by uh, either party, this in itself can amount to repudiation of the contract, meaning the other party might have the right to treat the contract as terminated and claim damages. So the employer can initiate termination in the event of specified defaults by the contractor, such as suspending the works or failing to comply with CDM regulations, or due to the insolvency of the contractor or corruption. So the ground for termination by the employer must be clearly established and expressed and before issuing any warning 
uh, notice, the contract administrator should check, um, for example, that all extensions of time have been dealt with in accordance with the contract. And it should be noted that without the first uh, warning notice issued by the contract administrator, the employer can't issue the termination notice. Now, in the event of insolvency by the contractor, the employer has the option to terminate or to consider another approach. So the second approach gives the insolvent party the option to come up with a rescue package. And during this period, if no termination notice is given, the employer is under no obligation to make further payments and the contractor's obligation to carry out and complete the works and design the contractor's design portion is suspended and the employer can take uh, reasonable measures to determine the site and works are protected and the employer can either make an agreement to arrange for the work to continue or terminate the employment of the contractor. So there are three options for completing the project in such circumstances. Either the contractor continues and completes the works unless they were able to arrange uh, resource backing or another contractor may be novated to complete the works. On a true novation, the new contractor takes over all the original obligations and benefits. Or the third option, uh, taking on a conditional novation, whereby the completion date um, and so on would be subject to renegotiation, and the new contractor would want to disclaim liability for the parts of the works undertaken by the original contractor. So the contract does give the employer the right to employ others to both carry out the works and complete the contractor's designed portion. Um, in such instances, the original contractor will have to remove a temporary plant uh, and so on and provide the employer with two copies of all design documents. One of the consequences of termination is that it takes uh, time for the contractor to withdraw from site and for the employer to establish the amounts outstanding before final payment. So if the employer decides not to continue with the construction of the works after termination, they must notify the contractor in writing within six months uh, of that notice and the employer must send the contractor a statement of the value of the works and losses suffered. Now, termination can also be initiated by the contractor uh, in the event of specified defaults by the employer, such as failure to pay the amount due on a certificate or where specified events result in the suspension of work beyond the period entered in the contract particulars or in the case of insolvency of the employer. So in the case of specified defaults, a notice is required specifying the default or event, and if this continues following receipt of the notice, the contractor may terminate the employment. In the event of insolvency, the contractor must issue uh, a notice and termination would take effect from the receipt of the notice. Uh, so the contractor will then have to remove uh, from site all temporary buildings, tools and so on and prepare an account setting out the total value of the work at the date of termination. So both parties have the right to terminate if the carrying out of the works is wholly or substantially suspended for a continuous period due to uh, certain events stated in the contract particulars. 
So these events include loss or damage to the works caused by specified perils and the contract administrator uh, instruction issued as a result of negligence or default of a local authority or a statutory undertaker. So notice must be given by either party in such circumstances and the employment of the contractor will be terminated seven days after receipt of the notice. And lastly, we have dispute resolution. So the standard building contract refers to five methods of dispute resolution, which is negotiation, mediation, adjudication, arbitration, and legal proceedings, also known as litigation. So adjudication is a statutory right. So if one party wishes to use this method, the other must agree. Negotiation and mediation are voluntary processes and depend on the cooperation of the parties. If neither of these three processes satisfy either party, then the dispute will have to be resolved by arbitration or litigation. So before any of the formal proceedings are initiated, there may be a period of negotiation where the parties try to resolve their differences between them. Now, if negotiations fail the parties may submit the dispute to alternative dispute resolution, uh, a term used to cover conciliation, mediation, and the mini-trial methods. So if mediation is pursued, a mediator will be appointed jointly by the parties and will meet the parties together and separately to resolve their differences. So the outcome is often in the form of a recommendation and if accepted, it is signed as a legally binding agreement and it would then, as a result, be enforced. However, if it's not accepted, it can't be imposed by law and the parties will need to seek alternative uh, dispute resolution processes. So unlike adjudication, arbitration or litigation, mediation is a non-adversarial process and tends to forge good relationships between parties. So if mediation fails, parties can choose to go down the route of adjudication, which under the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act 1996 requires parties to um, construction contracts to refer any dispute to adjudication. So under the standard building contract, the adjudicator may either be named in the contract particulars or nominated by the nominated body identified in the contract particulars, then the party wishing to refer the dispute to adjudication must give notice, stating the dispute or difference, give details of where and when it has arise, set out the redress sought, and include names and addresses of the parties. So if no adjudicator is named, the parties can either agree on one or either party may apply to the nominator identified in the contract particulars. So the adjudicator should not be an employee of either of the parties and be an individual with appropriate experience and expertise. And they are also expected to act uh, impartially and will set out the procedure to be followed and send it to both parties. So the party that didn't initiate the process will be required to respond by a set deadline and the adjudicator is then likely to hold a short hearing where parties can put forward uh, any further arguments or evidence. 
then the adjudicator has the power to obtain the facts and the law, the right to issue directions, the right to revise decisions and certificates of the contract administrator. They also have the right to carry out tests and to obtain from others uh, necessary information and advice. Their decision then must be given to the parties and the adjudicator may not retain it pending payment of the fee. So the parties will have to meet their own costs unless the adjudicator has a power to award uh, these costs to either party. Then the adjudicator's decision will be final and binding until the dispute is finally determined by uh, legal proceedings, arbitration or agreement between the parties. So if either uh, party doesn't agree with the decision, they can raise the dispute again in arbitration or litigation. So then if they do choose to go down the arbitration route, the arbitrator has power uh, derived from a written agreement between the parties to a contract and is subject to the Arbitration Act 1996. So arbitration awards are enforceable by law and can be subject to appeal on limited grounds. So the party wishing to refer the dispute to arbitration must give notice identifying briefly the dispute and requiring the party to agree to the appointment of an arbitrator. Now, if they fail to agree um, on an arbitrator, Either party may then apply to the appointor selected in the contract particulars to uh, assign an arbitrator. The arbitrator then has the right and duty to decide all procedural matters subject to the party's right to agree any matter. So within 14 days of appointment, the parties must each send the arbitrator and each other a note indicating the nature of the dispute and amount in issue, the estimated length of the hearing and the procedures to be followed. The arbitrator must then hold a preliminary meeting within 21 days of appointment to discuss the matters at hand and the first decision is whether a short hearing, a documents only or a full procedure is to apply. So under the documents process, the arbitrator makes the award based on the documentary evidence only. Under the full procedure process, the arbitrator will hold a hearing where the parties or their representatives can put forward further agreements and evidence. And under the hearing process, a hearing is held within 21 days of uh, the date when the process is chosen. And the parties must exchange documents not later than seven days prior to the hearing. And the arbitrator then uh, publishes the award within one month of the hearing. The costs under arbitration are normally based on whoever wins and the losing party pays and the proceedings are kept uh, private, unlike litigation. So there is also an option under the standard building contract for disputes to be referred to litigation and the choice has to be made before the tender documents are, are sent out. So litigation cases involve claims for amounts greater than 25,000 and are heard in the high court and construction cases are usually heard in the technology and construction court. So under this process, the timetable and other detailed um, arrangements are determined by the court. A judge will hear the case and the court has the power to 
order their actions regarding uh, the matters are joined. For example, between the employer and contractor and the contractor with subcontractor on same issues. So litigation makes the case public and is a much lengthier process than any of the other options. And that covers the rest of the standard building contract form. So to sum up what I discussed today, the contract sum may contain provisional sums or approximate quantities to cover the cost of work that can't be accurately described or measured until work is underway. If the contractor suffers a direct loss and or direct expense due to a delay or disruption, they may be able to be reimbursed under a loss and expense claim. Interim payment will follow the issue of an interim certificate. Then the contractor can issue their view on what the interim certificate should cover, known as the interim application, but the valuation is determined by the contract administrator. The interim valuation date will be stated within the contract and will apply on the same day each month or on the nearest working day. Interim certificates should demonstrate the basis on which the sum has been calculated from, stating the total value of work properly executed, the total value of materials and goods properly on site, and the value of off-site materials, goods or items, provided they are listed items, unless there are any other additional items to be included, uh, such as loss and expense claims and so on. Then the contractor must take out insurance against claims arising in respect of persons and property and insurance of the works. The termination clauses allow for the contractor's employment to be terminated, but not termination of the contract itself. The employer can initiate termination in the event of specified defaults by the contractor, and the same applies vice versa. Uh, both parties have the right to terminate if the carrying out of the works is wholly or substantially suspended for a continuous period due to certain events stated in the contract particulars. And lastly, the standard building contract refers to five methods of dispute resolution, negotiation, mediation, adjudication, arbitration and legal proceedings, also known as litigation, and is up to the parties to decide their preferred methods to be stated within the contract. As always, I like to provide you guys with an example just to put what I just went through into context. So today we will be going through a scenario where our practice was contract administrator and we prepared an interim payment certificate. We received an interim application from the contractor and also evaluation from the cost consultant. And there are a few discrepancies between them. So you are expected to highlight the differences and the pros process that should be followed uh, with the interim payment process. So you can uh, start by highlighting that obviously you are doing some research um, in comparing the interim payment certificate uh, prepared by... Uh, our practice, the contractor and the, and the cost consultant. And we notice that obviously not all of them are uh, aligning. And from your first um, review, 
you don't necessarily agree with the cost consultant's valuations uh, because um, when you carry out the estimates, our uh, valuation is coming out uh, lower. So we're basing this on like a fictional amount, um, but I won't state amounts because it won't make much sense in this scenario. So I'll just go through uh, the process to be followed. So you can then say that upon first inspection, um, it seems that the cost consultant failed to include the retention percentage within their estimations. And it's not clearly defined in their valuation um, that they have included this. So we've assumed that they haven't. Then the other item that we noticed that the cost consultant has allowed for on their valuation is that they have allowed for the sanitary appliances and fittings to be included within the payment, um, given that these are located at the supplier's warehouse. Um, we would argue that because these materials are stored off-site, and if, if they're not uh, covered as listed items, then they shouldn't be provided within the payment. But if they are listed, they must be in accordance with the contract, with proof to our practice from the contractor that the items are uh, their property and insured against uh, any loss or damage, uh, where the items are stored at, and the employer stated as the person whose order they are held for, and their destination to be the works. Also, the sanitary fittings are identified as uniquely identified items, is if stated within the contract particulars, then the contractor will have to provide a bond in favour of and approved by the employer. Um, another um, material that was stored in the warehouse was uh, floor and wall tiles. Uh, these, and they were also included in the cost consultant's valuation, uh, if these are not uh, uniquely identified items, so the contractor will definitely have to provide a bond uh, of the amount stated in the contract particulars. So if those items are indeed set as listed items within the contract bills of quantities, then the employer will be paying for those materials, which will then increase uh, the amount even further. And the discrepancies with the materials was also found in the uh, interim application made by the contractor. So uh, you are expected to highlight the different processes and the different types of applications each consultant needs to make. So when it comes to now, when it comes to the valuation preparation made by the contractor, the cost consultant and ourselves, we found that the contractor in relation to the interim application and payment notices, he may not less than seven days before the due date make an application to the cost consultant and us, the contract administrators. And the interim application will have to state the sum that they consider to have become properly due to them at the relevant due date. Uh, according to the standard building contract, which which states that the sum due as an interim payment is the gross valuation less any amount deducted or retained by the employer. Uh, any amounts of cumulative uh, total that have become due for reimbursement to the employer, any sums stated due in the previous interim certificate, 
and sums paid in respect of the interim payment notice given after the issue of the latest interim certificate and the basis on which that sum has been calculated. So all this is taken from a clause within the standard building contract. So if the interim certificate uh, was issued by us, the contract administrators, not later than five days after the due date, um, stating the sum that we consider to be or have been due at the due date to the contractor according to the interim payment calculated. And you can then uh, state the relevant clause from the Stadham building contract when it comes to interim certificates prepared by the contract administrator. Now, any interim valuations made by the cost consultant, whenever we consider them as necessary for ascertaining the amount to be stated as due in an interim certificate. So these are the three different processes when it comes to uh, interim uh, certificates and valuation. So the contractor would prepare an interim application, the contract administrator would prepare an interim certificate, and the cost consultant would also provide their interim valuation. So these are the three uh, different steps taken when preparing an interim payment certificate. So if an interim uh, certificate is not issued by the contract administrator, which is our practice in this instance, in accordance to these three methods, where the contractor has made an interim application uh, in accordance to what I just mentioned, then the contract evaluations uh, will be the sum due. But if the contractor hasn't made an interim application, they may therefore at any time after the five-day period give an interim payment notice to the cost consultant stating the sum the contractor considers to be or have been due to them at the relevant due date and the basis on which the sum was calculated. Now, with regards to interim payments for the period up to practical completion, these are the due dates for the interim payments set by the employer to be at monthly dates specified in the contract particulars up to uh, practical completion. If a pay less notice is given by the employer, the sum to be paid um, to the contractor on or before the final date for payment shall be the sum stated as due in the interim certificate. Now, if the interim certificate was not issued by the contract administrator, but an interim payment notice was given by the contractor, the sum to be, to be paid by the employer is subject to any pay less notice by the sum stated in the interim payment uh, notice. If the employer intends to pay less than the sum stated in the interim certificate uh, or in the interim payment notice, they need to inform the contractor no later than five days before the final date for payment. And if the employer fails to pay the contractor by the final date for payment, then the employer uh, shall, in addition to any unpaid amount, pay the contractor an interest on that amount at the interest rate for the period from the final date for payment until the payment is made. Uh, and the contractor shall be entitled to a reasonable amount in respect of costs and expenses incurred and the payment provisions before the appointment of the contractor should be recorded within an appendix of the appointment documentation set with the employer and after the appointment of the contractor they will be within the contract particulars. So essentially if you received um, 
a question like this, then you would simply just refer to the clauses within the standard building contract, whether it's with quantities, without quantities, uh, and so on, and just uh, refer to the relevant clauses about payment and be able to determine who is at fault, who is due for payment, and who owes who um, what money and when. So that should all be covered within the contract itself. Or again, I would highly, highly recommend you get the guide to the standard building contract. And that concludes the full uh, section of the standard building contract. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me. Thank you.